to be or not to be? That is not the question for today. Today's question is to eat or not to eat. Today's sermon deals with a question that many church members would frequently ask the pastors. Pastor, can I eat food sacrificed to idols or not? If this food has been prayed and offered to idols, can I eat it? Another commonly asked question in similar fashion is this. Pastor, my non-Christian family member has passed away and they are conducting non-Christian rites. Can I participate in it or not? So good morning, Amokyo family. Today, we'll be answering the first of these two questions. Can we eat food sacrifice to idols or not? And the answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And from the principles that I will teach you in a short while, you can then apply them into the second scenario. But first, let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word that you give to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that gives us guidance in this very practical question. So open up your word to us, teach us your truths, and empower us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now some context here. Like the sermon I preached on 7 of March, Paul would use some of the Corinthians' popular sayings against them. In that sermon, if you recall, the Corinthians said things like, everything is permissible. I have the right to do anything. Now, in today's scripture text, the Corinthians would also quote certain things, or rather Paul would quote certain things that the Corinthians would say. They would say things like, we possess knowledge. An idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. And likewise, in that time and now also here, Paul would not correct their theology so much as he would correct their attitude. But before we examine the biblical text, I want to explain to us a typical ancient worldview of how they see spirits and living beings. Now, to the Jewish mind, there are essentially three categories of living beings. First, they have beasts, behemoth, animals, so-called without understanding. Now, to be fair, I must state it very clearly here, without understanding doesn't mean that they are worthless. If you recall the story of Jonah, God intervened in Nineveh, not just because of human lives, Animal lives were at stake too, and that's why God didn't want Nineveh to be destroyed. Think about Noah. Why were the animals involved? Because God is interested in animals too. And so when we see, <coughs> say, beasts without understanding, it doesn't mean they are worthless. But that's the first category, animals, beasts. The second category are human beings. The Hebrew word is Adam. Now, human beings are differentiated from beasts, so-called animals, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Secondly, we have the Spirit of God breathed into us. The last and final category is divine beings, spiritual beings. And the Hebrew word is Elohim. In our Christian understanding today, we tend to only acknowledge God with a capital G. Only one God. We don't consider other spiritual beings to be God. And that is true. Because Paul says in verse 6, There is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But the Hebrew word Elohim was never used exclusively to refer only to God alone in the Old Testament. Angels are also classified under this category of Elohim. 
same as demons. Demons are also classified under Elohim. So we need to think in terms of categories when the word Elohim is used. In fact, in the Old Testament, the sons of God, which are used largely to refer to angelic or spiritual beings, spiritual beings are also called Elohim. So God dwells in the invisible heavens and naturally the sons of God, the angels, also dwell in the invisible heavens. Perhaps it will help all of us to think in terms of locality, to help understand these three categories. So animals or beasts, they live on earth, whether it's in the sea, on the dry land, or in the sky. Elohim, on the other hand, they live in the heavens, in the invisible realm. Perhaps those of us who are more familiar with non-Christian backgrounds will appreciate this worldview a bit more readily. In many non-monotheistic faiths, there is no problem recognizing many gods. Animals, on the other hand, including humans, we live on earth, while gods live in the heavens. And so we got to get used to this kind of thinking when it comes to the biblical worldview. Beasts form one large category. Now beasts include birds in the air, fish in the sea, and everything which creeps and crawls on the land. Likewise, everything that exists spiritually falls into this last category of Elohim. Elohim is not just reserved exclusively for God alone as a category. Now to help us appreciate this Jewish worldview a bit more, let me use an example. I know that most of us probably won't label an insect as an animal, right? Uh, how can an insect be an animal? But we need to step back and understand in terms of larger categories. In my son's uh, P3 science textbook, he is now learning about classifications. And in his textbook, there are only four big categories. Plants, animals, fungi, and bacteria. In these large categories, whether we like it or not, an insect is classified under animals. And so, once we have this understanding, we will see that Paul also viewed Elohim as one large category. That's why in verse 4 he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. So here Paul agrees with what the Corinthians are asserting. They are saying that an idol is nothing, there is really no other God except one true living God. And so Paul is happy that his spiritual children understand this truth. But verses 5 and 6 clearly reveal Paul's Jewish background and then incorporates the newfound Christian faith. Verse 5, For even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And so in verse 5, clearly Paul's mind has the Jewish understanding of the category of Elohim. Many spiritual beings, many gods. But verse 6, he makes the same claim. Yet for us, there is only one God and only one Lord. And so in this large category of Elohim, there indeed may be many gods, many lords, so-called spiritual beings. But for us Christians, there is only one God, capital G, and one Lord. In fact, verse 6 is so rich in theology. Yet for us, there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So here we see God the Father as the start and the end of all things. He is the reason why we exist. He is the purpose why we exist. We basically live for God's glory. Now Jesus is the means 
the connecting point, the means by which we get from the start to the end. Without Jesus, through whom nothing is possible. Without Jesus, it is impossible for us to glorify God. Incidentally, biblical scholars would fall back on this verse as one of the earliest indications that Jesus was regarded by the early church as divine, as God. Because here he is effectively placed on the same level as God the Father and clearly addressed as Lord, a term that is used exclusively for God in the Old Testament. Now, sorry for the short digression. To summarize this section, we need to remember the three large categories which form the Jewish worldview. Behima, the beast, Adam, the human beings, and Elohim, gods, spiritual beings. Beasts live on earth, is the visible realm. Gods live in the heavens, the invisible realm. The special category is the human being. While we live on earth, we have God's spirit breathed into us so that we become the bridge between heaven and earth. Think about that. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only we human beings can be the answer, part of the answer to the Lord's Prayer. That's why Jesus had to come too. He had to be incarnate to be a human being, to show us that we are the bridge between the Father's will in heaven and what should happen here on earth. So like Jesus, we are called to do God's will, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Human beings are that special category, the bridge between these other two categories of living beings, between heaven and earth. Again, this is a very long introduction, but a very necessary one. With that said, we come back to the original question, to eat or not to eat. Let's see what Paul says at verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is devout. So to eat or not to eat, that question really is determined by what our view of idols really is. If we see idols as nothing more than just porcelain, wood or metal, then go ahead and eat. But if we see idols as dwelling places for Elohim, for spirits, and that food has been offered to these gods, then don't eat. In other words, I can't tell you whether you should eat or not. You know yourselves whether you consider idols as so-called real or not. At the end of the day, to eat or not to eat is not really the question that matters. Paul makes it very clear in verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And so the question that really matters is whether we love or do not love our fellow Christians. Will we willingly sacrifice our freedom to demonstrate our love? That is the true test of every believer. So once again, Paul does not correct the theology of the Corinthians for he knows that they are right, but he wants to correct their attitude. We read in verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
Won't that person be emboldened to what is to eat, what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Isn't it interesting that Paul did not tell the Corinthians to teach everyone the truth, right? That an idol is nothing at all in this world. There is no God but one. Paul could have gone down this way, but no. He knows that the Corinthians were correct in their knowledge, yet he told them to consider the conscience as well as the consequences of their actions, the conscience of others and the consequences of their action. If by their eating of meat, in those days, you know, meat is not found as freely as we have here in Singapore, meat was often considered as the premium gift to sacrifice to an idol, right? And so if to eat meat is basically to eat food that was sacrificed to an idol, that's the context in those days. And so Paul is saying, if by eating this meat, you're causing others' conscience to be defiled, to be stumbled, then don't eat it. You may be free, but if they think that this meat is not really clean, is offered to a God, to a God, then you are stumbling them. You're causing them to sin. Again, if you read the full context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul actually begins in verse 1, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Here he quotes the Corinthians. Then he corrects them. He says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think that they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. In some other manuscripts, verse 3 is translated as, but whoever loves truly knows. Whoever loves is the one who truly possesses real knowledge. So it is not a matter of the head, it is a matter of the heart. And I personally believe this is the better translation, whoever loves truly knows. So Paul is teaching the Corinthians that while right knowledge is good and necessary, the best form of knowledge is actually love in action. How do I know you truly know something? When you live it out. And so here the cliche saying, saying is very applicable. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So the answer to whether we can eat food offered to idols is not just about our own faith levels. We must also take into account the faith levels of others. So Paul is saying, even if your faith is strong because your knowledge is correct, that idols are no gods at all, you must bear in mind your fellow believers' faith. If they are spiritually young or weak, then don't eat that kind of food for their sakes. Now, do we remember what is the theme verse for this year? I said that I will test all of you, right? What is the theme verse for the year? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. The first three words. Love never fails. And so the whole point of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is that their spiritual pride has completely blinded them to a more fundamental duty and trait of every Christian, and that is brotherly and sisterly love. It's the same theme throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. I don't care how much you know, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. What I really want to care know is how much you care and how much you love. 
So throughout this passage, as with the other passages, Paul never once corrected their theology, but he constantly pointed out their lack of love for each other. And so family, Amokyo family, love for each other really is what should guide our decision-making as Christians. Is all that we do loving or not? That is the real question. Do we love or not? So while we began with the question to eat or not to eat, the real question is, do we love or not? Now in case you're still confused whether you should eat food offered to idols or not, let me close by offering to you my personal journey, especially in light of our multi-religious, multi-racial society here in Singapore. When I first became a Christian, I told my non-Christian family members that I will no longer eat food that is offered to idols. At that time, I wanted to make a very clear stand that now my allegiance belongs to God, to Jesus Christ. It is not right for me to eat food that is sacrificed to idols because now I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. However, after many years, after it has become very clear to my own family members that I'm not turning my back on Christ regardless of what happens, I decided that it is not loving of me to constantly demand my family would cook a separate portion for me. It is so laborious for them. They had to cook two portions. And so in love, I told my family members, I will eat whatever food is placed in front of me. I will not raise any questions. I will not ask whether it's offered to idols or not. I will simply eat whatever is placed in front of me. This principle also guides me when I, whenever I eat out. Now here in Singapore, it's fairly common, right? When you eat out at many eateries, you see altars. It will be terribly insensitive and unloving for us as Christians to go around, you know, and persecute all these eateries. That will tear our entire social fabric apart. And so whenever I eat out, whatever food is sold there, I simply give thanks to God and I eat it. I don't ask any questions. But here's the thing. Just because I now eat food offered to idols in my own home or at many eateries, it doesn't mean that I will intentionally you know, go and seek out food offered to other gods in temples or other places just to prove a point. What if one of you sees me eating food at some other religious venue? Won't you be shocked? And that is what Paul will eventually teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 to 22. You may want to read it in advance. So my principle is this. While I know that I'm free to eat all things, I don't go and purposely eat food offered to idols just because I have the right spiritual knowledge. While I am free in Christ, and I know that there is no God other than the triune God we preach, I don't go around challenging other people with my faith, challenge them on their faith. No, that's an unloving thing to do. At the end of the day, we must understand that there's a huge difference between passive and active participation. Whenever I eat at at, uh, eat out at eateries, with, uh, with altars, with worship to other gods, I don't raise any questions because everyone is entitled to their religious beliefs. I simply eat with thanksgiving in my heart. What I do to guard myself is to make sure I'm not an active participation in other religious rituals outside of church. Now, when it comes to the to participation in family rituals then, my choice, you know, when I try to balance love and truth is this. I have no qualms stepping into another religious premise if I need to accompany my aged parents or relatives. I will walk with them, even hold their hand all the way to the altar 
because I love them, I don't want them to fall down. But I will not offer worship the way they do because I have confessed Jesus as my only Lord and Savior. So once again, let's come back to today's question. Can we eat food offered to idols? The answer really depends on three factors. Number one, your own faith. Do you believe an idol is a real God? If the answer is yes, then don't eat it. The second test is this. Do others, other fellow believers, believe that these gods are real? If they so believe, then you should not eat as well. And then finally, will your eating of food offered to idols stumble anyone for whatever reason? If the answer again is yes, then don't eat it. If your faith is young or weak, you need to demonstrate true allegiance to Christ. Don't eat it. If you know idols are nothing, then go ahead and eat. However, if you believe idols are the dwelling places of other gods, then don't eat. If your brother or sister in Christ's faith is weak because they believe idols are indwelt by other gods and they will be stumbled by you eating food offered to idols and because you love them, don't eat. So notice again how Paul places love above truth. While truth is important, love is greater. And so if your faith is strong, you possess genuine love for God and for those who cook for you, whether they be your family members or not, you don't see that you will stumble anyone, then go ahead, please, and eat with a grateful heart because you are, you know that you are truly free in Christ. The main point of uh, what Paul is trying to say is to remind all of us that one's faith and spiritual knowledge is only one side of the equation. The other side is our love for fellow believers and fellow human beings. In fact, I think the scale is tilted one-third here and two-thirds here. One-third is our own faith. Do we have faith, you know, that there is no other God but God alone? But two-thirds of the equation actually is in consideration to other people's needs. We may be free in Christ, but in Christian love, we should all be captives, as this final story will illustrate for us. Once, Tony Campolo, a famous preacher, was on a train in London. In those years, they had small separate compartments on the train. And he was in one of them, sitting across from two men who looked to be in their late 30s. They were about 10 minutes out of the station when one of the men had an epileptic seizure. He slipped off the seat onto the floor, trembling and shaking. And as he slipped off the seat, his friend immediately rolled up a newspaper and inserted it between his teeth to prevent him from biting his own tongue. When the seizure was over, his friend lifted him up, held him back onto the seat, took off his coat and put it around his friend to keep him warm. Then he turned and spoke to Tony Campolo. Oh, I hope that didn't upset you too much, mister. We never know when these seizures are going to occur. He hasn't had one for more than two and a half months. You see, we were in Vietnam together. He's British and I'm American. We were both seriously wounded. I lost my leg. And then he pulled up his trousers to show his artificial limb. And then he went on to say, my friend here had half his chest torn away by the explosion of a hand grenade. There was strap nail all through his chest so he couldn't move without feeling excruciating pain. The helicopter that was supposed to come and take us to hospital was blown out of the air by an enemy rocket and that seemed to be the end of all our hopes. It was then that my friend somehow got up on his feet. I don't know how he did it. But he reached down, grabbed hold of my shirt and began to pull me through the jungle. Every step was marked by agony. 
He screamed in pain with every movement he made. I yelled at him that he should save himself, and there was no way he was going to get both of us, both of us out of the jungle. But somehow, he did. A year and a half ago, I found that he had this condition. And so I sold my condo in New York City, I got rid of my car, and I came over here to be with him because someone had to be with him all the time. As I said, we never know when these seizures are going to hit him. Well, that's our story, mister. Maybe knowing it will make it easier for you to understand, you know, this chaos that you have just witnessed. Tony Campolo looked at this heroic and sacrificial young man and said, Hey, you don't have to apologize to me. I'm a professional speaker. I need stories when I speak. And you have just given to me one of the best stories I've ever heard. The man answered, Please, please don't be impressed. There's nothing to be impressed about. After what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. In the same way, every Christian should be ready to look at the cross of Jesus and say, after what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. After all, Jesus gave everything up to make us his treasure. And since Christ didn't just die for you, but he also died for the entire human race. If we truly love our fellow believers, our fellow human beings, and if we know that by exercising our rights, our freedom will stumble someone, then we must adopt that same slave attitude. And that is, after what Christ has done for us, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for my brother or sister in Christ. Come, let us pray. Father, we pray that, Lord, you will help us to live out your truth. Help us in all our decision-making to consider your love, what you have done for us, so that we may exercise our rights and freedom only in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.